Hi, dear listeners of the Education Newscast. Today we tackle an interesting question. Does the focus on potential, not experience, implicate different upskilling or recruiting approaches? And I'm very, very happy to have a colleague here. We actually never met. Today is the first time. And it's great to get to know you. Uh, thanks, Steve. Perhaps you could start briefly with a quick intro. Who are you? What's your journey so far? Yeah, thanks. It's so good to be here um, on this topic. So I'm, I am, my name is Steve Hunt. I'm the chief expert for work in technology for the SAP Innovation Office, which is a very ostentatious sounding title, isn't it? <laughs> um, but what do I actually do? I have a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, and my focus of my work has been throughout most of my career studying how can we use technology to create more effective work environments, to make more, better decisions about people, to create more inclusive organizations, support learning, development, those sorts of things, as well as how is, I also increasingly am looking at how is technology changing the work environments we need to create. And uh, my job at SAP involves working with our customers around the world um, on this topic of how do you use technology to create better work environments. That sounds like a very interesting and cool job. And actually, for all listeners, Steve also has a podcast, Work Matters. So I think we link that to the show notes. So if everyone wants to listen more from Steve, yeah, just check out his podcast, Work Matters. Yeah, so perhaps we can look at the topic today, uh, Steve. So Why do we have this increased focus on potential versus experience? I saw it actually also often on LinkedIn, and sometimes this sounds very intriguing, but like often the topic is a little bit more complex than just a calendar saying or so. Yeah, you kind of have to go look back at sort of the larger changes that are going on. And actually, um, thank you for mentioning my, my podcast. Also, I have a book coming out in, my, in the spirit of self-promotion. I just wrote a book called Talent Tectonics that dives into this topic where in the book, it talks about this idea of there's two, if you will, talent tectonic forces, like the tectonic plates under the earth, you know, that we can't see them moving, but we see their effects. Well, the two big talent tectonic forces that are happening in the world, one is digitalization of everything. So basically, and what does that do? Well, it creates, it changes the skills that we need. It's changing the skill sets. There are like in the United States right now, one of the fastest growing jobs is full solar photovoltaic installer, I think. Mm. Now that didn't even exist like 10 years ago. And so suddenly you're hiring for a job that were, there were no high school kids like 10 years ago. When I grew up, I want to be a solar photovoltaic installer, right? <laughs> And so you're creating this need for specialized skills. So the digitalization is having that effect. At the same time, the other big talent tectonic effect is demographic changes. The big one being that for the last 100 plus years, we've steadily been having fewer children and we're living longer. And people don't realize how big a change this is. So, for example, in the United States in 2020, for the first time, probably at least since World War II, if not before, more people left the labor market than entered it because people are aging out of it and people aren't coming in. Now, if you look in other countries around the world, like Korea and Japan and Italy, it's even more extreme. And so what this is doing is suddenly companies are needing people with specialized skills because of digitalization, often skills that didn't even exist before. But on the same time, there are fewer people you know, in the labor market overall. And the issue isn't that we don't have enough people. It's that the people we have don't necessarily have the skills that companies need. So this is 
driving this need to say, look, if you go out and try to recruit to say, we need to find somebody that has this specialized skill and already knows how to do it, they may not exist at all. It's kind of like that idea of, you know, traditional recruiting was kind of like pumping water from a well. Well, if the well's got no water, pumping harder isn't going to make it work. And so companies are saying we need to change how we are hiring because we're not going to find ready now talent. We're going to have to find talent that we can create ready, you know, and that's what hiring potential is about. Potential is about mm. your ability to do something in the future. And this is a this is a significant change. You know, hiring's always involved looking at potential to some degree, but a lot of it was around what are your existing qualifications? And now it's less about what are your existing qualifications and what do you know now? It's more about what could you learn? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And perhaps we can look at this briefly because like what you mentioned, I think skills or experience, you can you can check with, uh, of course, with the CV and then with a knowledge test and, and so on. Uh, you can, perhaps can ask past uh, employers, but how can we how can we assess potential or perhaps also what are different dimensions because it's not just one thing. Yeah, this is a lots of psychological research on this before I want to come to that. I, I think the first thing though, before you start like looking at how to assess the potential, the first is realizing that you need to look at how you're going to develop people once they're hired. Um, because you know, say you don't have high potential. You have potential to learn something. You have potential to do something in a different context. And so part of one of the shifts in job design is saying we need to start realizing that development and selection, how you develop people and how you hire people are two sides of the same coin, as we say in the United States, that we, how we develop people depends on who we hire and who we hire is going to depend on how we develop them. So part of this is really thinking about your job design to say, if we're going to start hiring more for potential, we need to focus more on designing jobs that support development and think about what development resources we're going to bring to the table. Then when you get once and then when you get to that, how do you actually measure potential? There's a variety of ways. I mean, and there's different aspects that drive people's potential to do something. And basically the big things are one, what do you already know how to do? So, for example, if somebody already knows how to read in one language, it's a lot easier to teach them to read in another language as opposed to if they don't know how to read at all. So you're kind of saying, what do you know already and how does what you know already going to influence your ability to learn the things that we want you to learn for the job? So that's you know what you already know. The second is what you want to do. Learning when people are engaged in a topic, learning is great when they're interested in it, when they're excited about it. If they're not interested in it, it becomes very difficult because you've got to focus your attention. Learning and development is a, is requires focusing your attention and we focus our attention on things that we find interesting. And there's individual differences in what we find interesting. And then the last one, and this is probably the hardest one because it gets into um, you have to be really careful on it, is your ability to learn things. There are individual differences in people's aptitude to learn different things. A lot of this has to do with what you already know, but people differ, for example, in how, how quickly they can learn foreign languages. Um, people differ in sort of picking up math skills and you know mathematics. They differ in how fast they can read. There are different things that are like differences in people's capabilities that are going to influence their potential, not so much what they could learn, but how quickly they will learn it. And so you kind of look at those three things, what you already know, 
what you want to know, and what you're good at learning. And does it mean skills are not important anymore? Well, I think that's a. I think skills are absolutely critical, and this is where mm. I'm starting to do some inter interesting research. I'm really hoping to get doing with the International Labor Organization because they've been looking at this and some of the data that. SAP and our partners have access to, we're able to look at how people have changed jobs. And if you did, like, if you were a school teacher, or maybe you became a computer programmer, but you can start looking at people's transfers and to understand how does what you know now influence where you might go in the future. Because I think the thing that we can influence the most as a society is not The latter two things. Well, I, 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 I talked about before, there's like what you know now, skills, there's what you're interested in, and there's sort of like your aptitude to learn different things. The things we can influence the most of society are skills and interests and aptitude, but aptitude the least. We can have the biggest impact on skills. We know mm. how to train people on skills. The question now, though, is that we're not what skills could people learn that would most help them learn other things? That to me is a really interesting question that going back to my example, like what is the value in somebody learning calculus? I learned calculus. I have a math degree, right? And I'll tell you, I never use calculus. I don't think I've used calculus maybe four times in my life since I've graduated from college where I've actually derived something. However, I believe pretty strongly that by learning calculus, it has enabled me to pick up other technologies much faster because it sort of, if you want, will strengthen my brain in certain ways. It got me comfortable with certain ways of thinking. And I think that's the really interesting thing on skills matter is going back to We used to focus on we're going to train people on this skill so you can apply it in the job. And you always hear about that. Oh, how can I use this at work? Is this relevant to what I'm going to do at work? I think more it's like not directly, but this skill may be relevant to your ability to learn stuff that you need to do at work, which is, a, to me, a fascinating mm. and very important and very different way of looking at why we want people to learn certain skills. Can you help perhaps me and, and the listeners to grasp that a little bit? But, but, but I could imagine, for example, uh, is this so-called meta skills, yeah, like mm -hmm. uh, be fast, perhaps also some digital fluency. I don't know if that's going mm -hmm. to that direction. Or Yeah, well, I think it is a, the, the, the idea of what is digital fluency. And it's like you can't learn to be digitally fluent. That's like an abstract concept, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But you might say, okay, you can learn to use Excel spreadsheets <laughs> and, a model, and, I think, and say, okay, and you, and you can learn like, you know, to do more complicated. So what's, so you might say, look, if you can learn, and, and I'm speculating here, I don't know, but I think this is an interesting question is to say, if we took somebody and said, look, we're going to really give you a structured course that's going to teach you how to do Excel and how to write macros and how to use the graphs and all this stuff. And Partially because, yeah, there's jobs where this would be useful and you might apply it. But even more so, this is going to make it easier for you to learn something like Java because there's concepts that, you know, which is another programming language. Or this is going to make it easier for you to understand how data is managed in general 
if you then went on to like learn like R or Python or other programming languages that you, because what it does is it teaches you a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think what we, to me, this is a really interesting thing. If you go into somebody and saying, are there certain skills that if you learn this skill, it's not just necessarily going to make you qualified for certain jobs. It's going to make you more, for one of a better term, qualified to learn to do certain kinds of jobs. So what I often hear at, at customers is that the big challenge is the so-called self-organized learning. So, mm -hmm. so what do you think about that? Because, of course, it's important to learn Excel or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, like what we discussed a little bit earlier is uh, that it's much more important that someone really can learn by his or her own and organize him or herself and doesn't wait until he gets the right timetable and everything. So getting things done or whatever, there are many different uh, approaches to organize yourself. So what, what do you think about that? Do you see some? So you're getting another kind of skill. So like I would say mm. there's like problem solving skills, which like mm. Excel and Russian. And then there's like self-management skills. Mm. Um, there's self-awareness skills. I mean, you can kind of, but okay, let's take the self-management. If you want somebody to be good at sort of managing things and keeping track of it, could you create a, a project where they have to do something that requires them to kind of do all those things to learn self-management? And it might be like, and, and, and tie it to something they find intrinsically interesting. So I'll, I'll give you a an example I've seen in my own children. Like one of my sons really likes playing like these fantasy role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. On the surface, you might say, wow, well, that's just kind of a trivial game. But actually, if you look at when, what they do, the amount of organization and thought about this character, this is happening, they're creating these entire worlds and they're managing it. And then they're managing the interactions when they have the games. And they there's a lot of things that they learn that I think people don't realize this really applies to a lot of other things, probably in some ways would I'm not would make him like a better project manager because what he's doing is in some degree he's managing a project. And so I think looking at a way to say okay if we want people to I'll give you an ex another example more work related. Um I was talking to a person at a conference who said he needed a project manager for uh, in a technology company and he was talking to somebody who was a sommelier you know, mm -hmm. like wine, managing wine. And the person was like, I like wine, but I'm burning out on me a sommelier. And he asked him, what do you do as a sommelier? And the person goes, because do you deal with lots of multiple stakeholders that have unrealistic demands? He goes, yeah, that's the essence of being a sommelier. You're dealing with the <laughs> restaurant owner, the customer, the vendors. And he goes, you are a project manager. You just don't realize that's what you're doing. He goes, I can teach you You know, if you're if you're a project manager managing a lot of computer programmers, your job is not to understand computer programmers. Your job is to help computer programmers be really effective at working with each other, which he goes is kind of like what you're doing as a sommelier, the skills that you need that. So I think you look at this idea of looking at the underlying capabilities that you get from some of these tasks and realizing that if you are if you can be a sommelier for a like high pressure restaurant, then you can also probably be a project manager in a high pressure technology company, you know, because it's because on the surface, they seem totally different. But if you start looking at the underlying skills, what makes them good? It's like, oh, there's a lot of similarities. And I think that is, you know, 
Again, though, what the person said is I had to redesign the job and set expectations that I'm bringing a person in who doesn't know anything about the technology. Whereas in the past, we hired people that knew the technology but didn't know anything about managing projects. <laughs> so it's rethinking this, this sort of rethinking. Mm. And that, what I really like uh, is uh, that you shouldn't look detailed at single skills or qualification, but at the underlying capability. And if you bind this to perhaps something what people love yeah, or uh, can connect to, we have this want, uh, what you mentioned, uh, what people want. I think then, yeah, I think that's that's an important thing, not to look too tactical in the end. Uh, or, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The sommelier is another good example because you hear mm. about a person who developed project management skills not because they wanted to be a project manager, but because they liked working with wine. <laughs> And then then it sort of led back, it backed them into another area. Like another, uh, I think this is really important too, is going back to what I said, one of the big talent tectonic shifts is this demographic change where... Mm. You know, we just have fewer people in the population. How would I say the population is not growing at the rate of our economies. And so, you know, countries are having to find ways to how do we more fully utilize everyone. And, you know, part of this is about diversity and inclusion, which is good in and of itself. But part of it is an economic need to like, how do we bring more people into the labor market who don't have the traditional job backgrounds? And I'll give a great example of this. I used to work for Starbucks coffee companies this years ago. And I met a woman who was a store manager and she was talking about, and we were working on the hiring process. And actually we were, we were changing the way they did hiring. This was quite a while ago. And I was talking to a woman about this idea that what we're trying to do is we're trying, like if we want somebody to be a store manager at Starbucks, one is like, well, just hire other retail store managers. It's like, yeah, that's a limited talent pool just trying to poach other existing retail store managers. What we need is we need to bring people into be store managers that weren't store managers before. That's how you expand your talent pool. And this woman talked about her own experience. She said, yeah, it was interesting when I was interviewing for the like a, uh, my first manager position at Starbucks. She goes, I was working as a barista And I was applying to become an assistant store manager. And the person asked, well, have you managed any large projects? And she goes, well, at first I said, no. And then the person, then I thought about it. I said, well, I'm, I am the person, the president of our town's youth athletic league. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you've ever done anything with kids sports, but if there's anything that is like an incredible management task, it's managing a bunch of volunteer parents whose kids are playing sports, who everyone has an opinion. There's a zillion scheduling craziness. You have no money constantly. It's like, man, if you can manage a youth sports league in a town, you can certainly manage a Starbucks. You know. But her point was she never thought of herself as having that capability. She never thought – she goes, I never realized the skills that I had developed – through doing something that was on the surface seemingly totally unrelated to what I ended up doing as a career. Yeah, I think that's a great hint, yeah, to look not just at the professional life, but also what people are doing uh, next to that. So I try to summarize a little bit. So the pro is definitely we have a higher candidate pool. You mentioned that. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, skills are easier to train than passion or mm -hmm. uh, motivation or interest. 
also what I read uh, in preparation is we have also different point of views. Yeah, yeah. So like people come from another direction. Like we just don't have people who studied uh, IT or, or whatever if they work at an IT company. But uh, on the con thing, and that's what I want to double check with you. So what I, I know from my personal experience when I was manager, I also looked that people are productive fast. I don't waste too much time with onboarding. So I could imagine this is an issue. And I also believe that there is some way of talent. So I'm, for example, more creative person. Mm -hmm. I find it hard. At least I don't have lots of motivation uh, to dive, deep dive in Excel or, or whatever. And yeah, so perhaps some people, they have talent for something and uh, not for other topics. Yeah, I think I think it's more interesting. Yeah, there is the talent difference. I kind of said hmm. going back to the three areas, the things that we can heavily influence is we can we can use formal training to help people learn skills. It's about what you literally know how to do, you know. Mm -hmm. um, interest is sort of wired within people, but I think part of it is if we present certain jobs a certain way, people suddenly realize, oh, this is interesting to me. And we can almost And when people are more interested in something, then they're more likely to learn the skill. So a lot of that, like that example of the sommelier, mm. this person developed project manager skills, not because they wanted to be a project manager. They developed because they liked wine. They liked the industry. You know, so you almost have people finding ways to present opportunities to learn skills that tie to people's natural interests. You know, I've seen lots of examples, like if you want to get very early talent sourcing, there's a Lego Robotics is mm. a good example of that. I don't know if you're, my kids did Lego Robotics program, which is sponsored by companies like SAP and Intel. But what it is, is it's kids who are like, you know, elementary school kids playing with Legos and creating robots. And they're learning to be engineers, but they don't teach about, hey, let's be engineers. They say, mm. no, let's, you know, play with Legos. <laughs> So you tie it to people's interests. The third one that you got, which is like um, just potential to be creative or potential to have ab analytical thinking, that one psychologically is much harder. You can assess it directly. It mm -hmm. is much harder to change. It changes longer over time. And frankly, I wouldn't... I mean, I'm saying we shouldn't use it. I'm a big believer in the assessments and they work and all. But the problem is that you're kind of really restricting yourself. Mm. People can't do much to say, I'm going to improve my aptitude at math. It's not like you can do that. It's an abstract ability. People can say, I'm going to learn to program Excel. I'm going to learn to do like statistical programs in R or little things. They can do that. And That will help that potential, but it's that idea of giving people tangible things they can do with skills that will help open up new job opportunities for them. I think going back, what we've come back to, and your point about you want people to get a productivity quickly, though, we're going back to this. We also have to change the expectations of hiring managers to say, mm. look, by not expecting somebody to hit the ground running and know everything on day one, we're going to expand our talent pool. We're going to bring people in that we didn't have to pay tons of money to pry them out of another organization. <laughs> They'll be eager here, but you're going to have to help them learn. And the stuff that they're going to have to learn is not going to be the core skills of their job, like project management or whatever that task. It's the context where they need to apply it. So like sticking with that Somali example, because I shared already, 
there was a lot of learning on technology and programming. This person had to learn that if you'd hired a traditional project manager from the technology industry, they would have already known. It's a little bit like um, if you hire somebody to work in a different country, you're saying, look, they've got these underlying skills, but they don't know the language. We have to teach mm. them the language. Mm. We didn't hire them to be fluent in the language. They can learn that. What we hire them for is the stuff that you know we can't teach them. Yeah, and what what we heard heard before is that just how the let's say employment or talent market is development. I think it's a pure necessity. Okay, so so perhaps uh, many of our listeners are also pract practitioners in learning or HR. So perhaps we can look at some concrete tips. I, I like one tip from you already: change expectations of hiring managers. Yeah. So that uh, that people start running and be 100% productive first, look also at development. Uh, of course, as a learning uh, expert, <laughs> I really love that. So do you have any other tips, uh, Steve? Yeah, I think uh, it it is requiring people to say, what is it that you most want people in this job to know that you don't want to have to teach them? So your example of like self-management, I'm the same way. I want self-starter people. I don't want personally, I don't want people that I have to ask to do stuff, right? <laughs> I want people that I have to ask them to inform me about what they're doing. Um, and so you might look at those sort of capabilities and say, what are the things that we want people to have behaviorally or in terms of very specific knowledge that we really are not realistically going to teach them or we don't want to teach them. And I think what you're going to find is most of that stuff is not about technical skills. It's more about work styles. The second thing, though, is to say on the technical skills, let's look at we know where we'd like people to be. But let's really try to understand that we're not going to hire them. We're like, let's look at a ramp up time. How long before we want this person to be independently working in this job without instruction? How long is that onboarding time? And really working very closely with the development organization, the recruiting organization should be working side by side where it should be able to say, where the recruiter should be able to say, well, you know, if we got rid of this job qualification, we would have this larger labor pool. And then the development organization says, well, if you brought in people that didn't have that qualification, this is what we'd have to do to develop them to get them up, you know, competent in the role. And so looking at that balance, now I'll tell you the, the benefit is when you drop qualifications, you tend to also drop salary levels. And so you say, well, it's going to take longer to get them productive. We're going to have to spend more money, but you're probably spending less money on them. And also you're probably going to keep them longer because one of the biggest drivers of retention is development. Mm. So, and it's interesting too, that you look at um, like one of my nephews who's just graduated from college. It was really interesting because he said, I don't want to apply for jobs that I'm qualified for because I, because I'm qualified for it. I already know how to do it. I want to apply yeah, I for want a to job. Develop. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm happy to do something yeah. I don't know how to do. So The biggest, sort of, to summarize this tip, the biggest tip is the recruiting process should be a combination of the hiring manager, obviously, the recruiter, but the development organization. If you're staffing for large numbers of people, obviously, if it's, it's, if it's a one-off hire, it's different. But if you're just hiring, you know, you know we're going to have to hire 25 people or 100 people or 1,000 people in this kind of job, sitting down 
hiring manager setting the qualifications of this is what I need to be somebody productive. The recruiter saying, well, this is how many people you're going to find in the labor market in those qualifications. Let's challenge these qualifications. What if we got rid of this one, like college degree or whatever? Then the development people saying, okay, if you hire people that don't have that capability, it means we're going to have to develop it. What will that take? Looping that back to the hiring manager and saying, this means you're going to have to staff the team differently and manage differently. But really having that conversation between those three parties together, I think, is 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 what is missing now in most organizations. Mm. Most organizations, it's more like the hiring manager sets the qualifications, throws it over the fence to the recruiter. Recruiter tries to find somebody. They throw the candidate over the fence to the development person. It's not a true collaboration. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. Uh, I think currently it's different process steps, different people, different silos, perhaps we could say, yeah. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, I think that's a great call, uh, call to action for everyone listening. So if you're a development expert, collaborate closer with the recruiters and vice versa. Yeah. All right. So if I was running a, mm -hmm. uh, if I was a head of HR organization, I would actually combine my development organization and my staffing organization and make sure that they were in the same group. I mean, working a lot, you know, not necessarily, they're specialized areas, but really tying that because going back to my point, How you develop people is entirely dependent on who you hire and who you hire is entirely constrained or enabled by how you develop them. Mm. All right. Yeah, so thanks so much. So these were the topics and questions I prepared. So anything I missed to ask or you want to uh, position regards? No, I've, I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. I love the podcast mm. that you're doing. I love getting out to this because this field is changing so much. There's a mm. lot to learn about learning. So I have some personal questions. So that's the own, let's say, chapter at the end of the podcast. So mm -hmm. if we are through with the with the yeah. let's say content we wanted to discuss, and we actually uh, already discussed uh, previously. So there, I think there are other topics we might strive, like learning culture, very big thing for some people. It's very hard to grasp, like organizational culture. Yeah, but it's very important also to develop that to challenge uh, where we are and uh, yeah. Like self-organization also there plays into that, for example. But uh, so perhaps we can look at you, Steve. So we call it home story. So it's not regarding your home or house, but uh, with you as a person. So what is your narrative for learning and development? Do you have a narrative? Uh, yeah, my narrative, short attention span. <laughs> I like figuring stuff out. And once uh -huh. I, whether or not I did successfully figure it out or not, but then I kind of like get closure and go, okay, I have my talk track for that. Um, and, you know, you have to be careful because sometimes you think you know and you don't actually know, which is another psychology concept called meta-motivation and self-regulation. Um, but I, I think... Uh, I would say it's two narratives. One, at a personal narrative, I mean, why I'm so passionate about this field is that I really do believe, and it's kind of my motto, better work environments create better world environments. And technology has a huge impact on the work environments that we have. Um, and, I, you know, outside of our health and our social relationships, the biggest impact on our happiness is how we spend our time, which is work. Mm. And work actually affects the first two. So, work has a huge impact on people's happiness and meaning. And so I think that's the thing that really drives me is my own self-narrative is finding ways to use the tech, the, the science of psychology to improve the quality of work for people. And that includes also making companies profitable. 
there's not nothing good employee experiences do not come from working for struggling companies. Mm. So it's about finding how do you balance these different things? How do you balance people and profit and the planet and that, and that, that I find um, very rewarding for me. And there's always more work to do. We will never solve this problem. There's, mm. you, know, you fix one problem and you move right on to another one. That lies in the, human nature i guess yeah. mm -hmm. so so what's on your to learn list do you have something what you want to learn this year well i'm starting a really big project right now on uh, economic inclusiveness and trying to find ways to use technology to reduce what's called precarious work mm -hmm. um, you know there's billions of people that are not even counted in unemployment statistics they're not even participating in the labor force and When you look at, you know, sadly right now, what's happening with Ukraine and the refugees, that population in Europe just went way up and finding ways to use technology to help people have more meaningful and fulfilling work. Nobody wants to be in what's called precarious work or, you know, you could say it's often it comes with poverty, not always, but nobody wants to be in those situations. And people get stuck in those situations and it can go from generation to generation. And I believe there's a way to use technology um, to, to help address this through providing people with what we were talking about, some of these skills that will open doors mm. for them, enabling them to get connected with opportunities by getting companies to look beyond the traditional talent pools and saying, and finding these people. And so that's probably the thing I'm most excited about right now that, and um promoting my book <laughs> selfishly <laughs> okay we, we link it in the show notes okay. uh, so check it out because it talks and, about it the book the book talks about this issue i mean we okay. are facing some the future of work could be utopian where everyone is constantly learning new jobs and it's oh this gig economy and we're moving around from different areas it could be that way It could also be totally dystopian of a few highly skilled people, totally overworked, constantly trying not to lose their jobs, and a larger proportion of people whose skills have become obsolete, stuck in a series of repetitive dead-end jobs till they get automated. We really could see, and we're, we're going both ways right now, and to the degree that I am able to, I would like to learn how to influence the world to say, If we make the right choices, it's just like it's like environmental sustainability. When it comes to people sustainability, if we make the right choices, we have the capability to give everyone on this planet fulfilling, meaningful work. Mm. And I'm not talking about socialism or communism. When we do it through capitalistic means, but it requires rethinking some of the things that we were just talking about on this podcast, questioning traditional assumptions of work, questioning you know the way work is structured so that everyone can participate. That's probably what i'm most focused on right now and do you have any tips let's say how you keep up to date for the listeners if they want to uh, update themselves of course perhaps follow you on linkedin or yeah. listen to the podcast uh anything else uh yeah um well i mean personally i, I just read voraciously um and mm -hmm. i really try to read a wide variety of things i think for the listeners It is interesting to look at things beyond like work, like applied psych, like American Psychological Association and other areas like that, where when it comes to the psychology of work, um, the Society of Industrial Organizational Psychology has a website. There's some really interesting psychological research I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Academy of Management is another one. Um, 
some of these you have to pay money to get access to the articles, but you can still get a lot of just from reading the abstracts. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting academic research that dives into very tip specific topics. There's a whole area of psychology called cyber psychology that looks at how um, online connections affect people's behavior. So um, I would say the stuff that I think most listeners, when I talk to business people, mm-hmm. that a lot of listeners don't have is they these business people don't read the psychological literature. But if you're a person that's interested in the psychology of work, going back to those Journal of Management, Academy of Management, Society of Industrial Organizational Psychology, there's a lot of interesting things on their websites and in their um, feeds that I think are worth looking at. All right, thanks. Yeah, so we, we will link some in the show notes. You find them below if you scroll down in the podcatcher on Apple or Open SAP or wherever you are. And actually, there I think there are also some good podcasts around that, yeah, yeah. to get you up to speed, whatever your, your favorite channel is. Yeah, I mean, Work Matters, Simon Sinek and Adam Grant, they tend to talk about some of this stuff a lot too. So. Yeah, Adam Grant is pretty famous industrial yeah. psychologist, so... All right. Yeah. So I think we're, we're coming to the close. So anything you want to add or no, we forgot? Just, just a thank you. I thank you for this opportunity. Um, it's always kind of humbling when people ask you just to share your opinions. So I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time. Yeah. So dear listeners, we hope you found that in- inspirational. So yeah, check out the show notes, follow uh, Steve on LinkedIn, check out the podcast or the upcoming book. So thanks again for your time. Thanks for you, Steve. And yeah, I'm wishing all of you a great further day and uh, happy learning. Bye.